G'day, beloved listener. Welcome to the Little Wildest Program coming to you from Gadigal Country. In a moment, wild love with uh, Kira Lindsay bringing to life the story of Adelaide Ironsider, a quite extraordinary yet uh, largely forgotten colonial artist. I, in fact, must confess to knowing nothing about her until we found this wonderful book. Oh, and then later, our favourite eccentric Edward Brooks Hitchings' uh, Love, A Curious History in 50 Objects. So uh, just for tonight, it's Late Night Love. And to start off, I welcome to the studio historian and author Kira Lindsay. Her book is uh, Wild Love, The Ambitions of... uh, Adelaide Ironside, the first Australian artist to astonish the world. And Kira is the uh, history advocate at the History Trust of uh, South Australia. G'day, Kira, and thanks for actually coming in. I don't have a lot of physical guests these days. (laughs) Introduce us to this extraordinary woman and tell us uh, why and how she attracted your attention. Mm, Thank you. Well... Adelaide Eliza Scott Ironside, as she preferred to call herself, Izzy, which was the initial of each of those names. And that's how she often signed her her paintings and how people referred to her in letters, was born in 1831 in Sydney. And she was the granddaughter of a First Fleet Marine who had become the town jailer in Sydney. And her grandmother was a convict forger. So I like to think that this <laughs> convict forger, the hand of the forger, was at work in teaching Adelaide how to start her drawings, um, how to learn to draw and, and paint. And uh, she grew up in Sydney and at the lower end of George Street. Um, and then when she just before she turned 16, her mother, thinking of Sydney Harbour as a natural moat between the town and the North Shore, promptly moved her daughter to the North Shore. And, uh, and so Adelaide then spent that sort of formative time of her life living among the bohemians of the North Shore and uh, learning to love the Australian wildflowers and eventually painting them too. So that's how she sort of began her life. But the next stage of her life, Philip, is even more kind of extraordinary. As we shall discover as our conversation unravels now, there's lots, of course, written about currency lads, but not currency lasses. Indeed. And this was a passion of mine, a question that I asked about 20 years ago. It started off my research, first my PhD, then my first book, The Convict's Daughter, which was the story of my great, great, great aunt who um, in 1848 scaled down the three-storey building of her father's hotel and attempted to elope with the Attorney General's wayward second son, but her father came blazing after them. you're making that up. It's all true, Philip. I've seen it in the records. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, of course, Adelaide was the first Australian artist to, uh, to train overseas. Right. So there she is painting her flowers, the the wildflowers of the North Shore, really, and people are, are watching her work, admiring her work, and they're all saying, you know, perhaps you should go overseas. And she's encouraged by this, but she's also inspired by a very famous French novel called Corinne or Italy. And this was a, a book, a novel by the famous French writer Madame de Stael, who Napoleon thought was as dangerous as Russia 
<laughs> Napoleon once said, there are three great threats in Europe, Russia, England and Madame de Stael. <laughs> and the reason that Madame de Stael was such a threat was that Madame de Stael believed that women could have genius. I want to get back to the notion of genius a little later, but uh, let the record show that we're talking about the first artist to have a solo exhibition at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. This was in 1878, and that's a decade after her death in Italy. Absolutely. You know, it's even something of a miracle that those works returned to Australia. So she had acquired quite an extraordinary reputation abroad, so much so that when she died in, in Rome in 1867, she was described in an obituary that was published in the Athenaeum, which was then the biggest literary and artistic journal in the British world. She was described in a, a, a very lengthy obituary as being the impersonation of genius. So, you know, she had this extraordinary reputation in both Italy and England where she had won prizes. Even the Prince of Wales had purchased one of her works and yet she found it very, very difficult to get any colonial patronage. She often had a huge struggle just to make ends meet, didn't she? Now, yep. you tell her story as speculative biography, what is speculative biography? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting way, I think, of describing what we might call a subgenre of life writing. So it makes a claim to veracity, but it also recognises the fact that it's using all this evidence. Um, but then what it does is when you reach these moments where the historical record runs thin or is completely silent, that we might combine what we would call the discipline of context to inform the imagination and to fill in those gaps. And this kind of technique, Philip, is really handy when it comes to all those people who really didn't leave much of a record. So people without education, without economics or influence, you know, basically half of the population in the 19th century. Kira, is, is your approach frowned upon by some? <laughs> yes, but that makes it even more appropriate for Adelaide Ironside, who was also frowned upon by some. So I like to think that when we do these kind of works, we find the spirit of the person that we're writing about and write in a way that complements that spirit. And, uh, and Adelaide was pretty radical. She was experimental. And so it feels like the right way to go about it. Well, we'll talk about her radical radicalism and uh, her fascinating experiments in due course. But it's not just a story about her, it's a story about her mum as well. Mm, yeah. I thought it was really important to include as many women as I could in this story because I think when we write biographies, we often tell them as single-person stories. But particularly for women of the 19th century, there's are collective achievements. And in Adelaide's case, she had a whole bevy of women around her who were actively supporting her career, her ambition to become the acknowledged mistress of art in the Southern Hemisphere. And at the heart of that group of women who worked very hard was her mother, Martha Rebecca Ironside, who of course was the daughter of the First Fleet Marine and the convict forger. Now, you've already mentioned your previous uh, book, The, the Convict's uh, Daughter, Speculative Biography. Uh, not many of the primary historical sources uh, existed. 
Right. Well, that is certainly the case with the convict's daughter. All I was really able to find, other than the newspapers in that fantastic portal that we have called Trove, other than that was a single deposition where... um, the woman in question had signed her name reluctantly to the evidence that she had given and smudged her signature with what I speculate may have been tears. But actually in the case of Adelaide Ironside, Philip, we've got a a much richer, an abundance of riches, I guess you could say, although all is not what it seems. So when we look further into the archives, we find, for example, that those in the State Library are described as correspondence mainly received. So what we have is hundreds of letters from famous people like the Brownings, John Ruskin, Sir James Clark, who was Queen Victoria's physician. But we only have 14 letters from Adelaide Ironside and five, four from her mother. Tell me about her, uh, her early life in colonial Sydney. Well, we don't really know much because of those scanty sources, but we can. I've been able to sort of triangulate a huge amount of um, primary and secondary resource material to speculate about what that must have been like. And to do that, I've used her art. I've used the twenty or so Republican poems that she published in the in the newspapers later. I've used the records about her grandparents. So her grandfather, the town jailer, had been involved in the rebellion. The rising against uh, Governor Bly, for example. So you can start to piece all these things together to get a sense of, if you like, to peer inside the domestic world of Redmond Court where she lived. And we know that her uncles were great lovers of poetry and of their country. They were patriots. Uh, they wrote about their country with in poetic terms. And, uh, and I like to think that Adelaide grew up in that kind of literary... Uh, patriotic atmosphere, and that's what inspired a lot of her tastes. She's often described as a genius, but genius, and you've used the term a couple of times already, meant something a little different back then. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a very important question. Today, you know, we think of genius as being about an accomplishment, um, a state of originality, but In the 19th century, this term is often used to describe people who have a heightened sensibility, whose delicate frame might be smaller than their gigantic brain, which is a a quote from one of her poems. There's a kind of quickening of life associated with this notion of genius, which is often something that's attributed to people who are consumptive, which she certainly was. So, yeah, it's not really about her art so much as the art by which she lived and how she lived her life. There's a nice description of her by a headmaster. Wonderful imagination, but in uh, need of considerable discipline. (laughs) Yeah, and I think these quotes, these kind of quotes need to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. So, for example, the famous, the very well-known art um, collector, Sir Charles Nicholson, said that she was wild, impulsive and often irrational. John Ruskin said that she was noble but firework-worky and that he couldn't really work out how to separate the sense from the nonsense in her. But I think, Philip, that these... Um, our expressions, they, they say more about the men who were making these comments than they do about Adelaide, but they still give us a little window into who she was. She was obviously someone who um, pushed back when people said things that she didn't like. <laughs> I'm talking to Kira Lindsay. You mentioned that she wrote poetry. Any good? <laughs> 
Well, that is a matter of taste. I will say that it's pretty hard to get into. But once you do forensically sort of dive into it, a couple of things really stand out to me about it, Philip. The first is that it reminds me a lot of the sprung rhythm of that fantastic Irish poet, Gerald Manley Hopkins. So once you start to think about it like that, you can find the rhythm and you can find the cadences and the way in. The other thing is that her poetry is highly mystical. So she's a romantic of the first order. She's talking about blue electric fires, the universal intelligence. She's seeing the world through this elevated, heightened sensibility. It's almost like she's on something. Yeah, well, laudanum was certainly around and uh, and consumptives had their, you know, their fair share of uh, at laudanum, you know, the, the fabulous poet the most famous poetess of the period, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who she um, idolised and then met. Uh, She certainly, you know, wrote her poetry under the influence of laudanum. But um, I think she belongs, a better way of understanding Adelaide Einstein might be to think of her as coming, being very influenced by, by both German and Scottish transcendentalism. We know that she spoke French, Italian and German. She was accessing, you know, German philosophers. She was thinking about all these sort of things. And she was living what she called a life of aspiration where she was enjoying a great enthusiasm for the invisible. So she's not just an ordinary currency lass, you know, walking around the pubs and towns, the streets of Sydney. She's having this kind of elevated spiritual life. I like her politics. She was, for example, an ardent Republican. Indeed. She was influenced by um, the famous controversial firebrand, Dr John Dunmore Lang, the Presbyterian jailbird in and out of um, cells for his uh, libel and his debts. But she loved him. She called him her patriot father. I think that she really saw him as a father figure and he adored her in return. This is the correspondence that has the most depth to it in the archive and you really get a sense of a relationship of equals, of fair exchange. In fact, there's quite a few times where Adelaide tells him off uh, for overstepping the mark and assuming too much. And at the end of her life, because she dies before him, he talks about how aggrieved he was for not being able to secure her the patronage that she deserved in the colony. William Wentworth. Yeah, well, there's someone at the other end of the political spectrum. But her family knew the Wentworths. So her grandfather had been familiar with Wentworth's father, Darcy Wentworth. And so the families went right back to um, the early days of the colony or the camp, as Sydney was then known. And so Adelaide Ironside had to sort of tread this careful balance between keeping on the side of the Conservatives because she would need their patronage, but also showing her colours as an ardent Republican. And in fact, she wrote a poem against Wentworth, which was published in the colonial newspapers. So she didn't always tread that carefully. William Wentworth, of course, wanted to have a a homegrown aristocracy, the Bunyip aristocracy, as it was called. Absolutely. And she, she and her mother signed a petition opposing convict transportation. Philip, this was one of the most exciting discoveries that I found in my research. So I picked up that she may had signed this document because 
I knew that she was very interested in this period of politics, the movement against the transportation, of renewing the transportation of convicts, and that Dr Lang had played a very theatrical and prominent part in those conversations and debates. And so when I found the briefest mention to a female petition in the newspapers, I decided that I should start looking to see if I could find it and confirm whether or not she had signed it. So I went looking through all these different archives and I was told that I wasn't going to be able to find it, that it had probably been destroyed as petitions usually were during that particular period of time. But lo and behold, there it was in the Legislative Council. 9,000 signatures. More than 9,000 signatures. And it's a cracking document because it's divided into three lines and you can see name after name of women who we might never otherwise meet, some of whom signed their name with a simple cross because, of course, they were illiterate, probably convicts. Others signed their name with a beautiful hand, including Martha and Adelaide Einside. Adelaide has uh, great ambitions in her marriage and she wants to pursue her art and decides to enter the Paris Exhibition of 1855. Tell us about this. Well, this was the first time that the colonies had decided to organise themselves to exhibit at an international exhibition. They had shown a little bit of stuff in the previous one in 1851, the most famous exhibition, a bit of wool here and a bit of gold there, but they decided to take themselves very seriously and to organise a proper exhibition. But most of it was to do with primary produce in the colony, but a a small group of people, commissioners associated with that, realised that they needed to show that the colonies wasn't just all about gold and wool and wheat and so they organised for some artists. But Adelaide was the only woman to win a silver medal for her art and her wildflowers, she painted over 40 wildflowers in a beautifully produced folio and presented them at the Australian Museum. They were selected for Paris and so she followed behind them with her mother in 1855 and thereafter described herself when she was introducing herself to people in England and Europe as the flower of Australia. <laughs> Ellen on RN and my guest is uh, Kira Lindsay, author of Wild Love, the, uh, the story of colonial artist Adelaide Ironside. So uh, Adelaide's wildflowers were recognised and acclaimed and she succeeds and wins a silver medal. She does. So she wins the silver medal in Sydney and then she uh, is given an honourable mention in Paris and she is on her way to Italy with introductions from Dr Lang to many of the most famous people, what we would call the eminent Victorians of England and Italy. But then when she got to Rome, where her heart had been pining to live, she found herself in the company, a coitery of women who had come from all over the world, from America, from England to live lives of greater personal and professional freedom. And they called themselves the sister painters, although those from America called themselves the jolly female bachelors. The sister painters, how wonderful. And of course, he, she uh, also meets uh, the Brownings, Robert and Elizabeth. Yes, she does. And uh, from traces in the correspondence, the Brownings correspondence, there are all these references to Miss Isy or Miss I, and 
Elizabeth Barrett-Browning talks quite specifically about Adelaide communing with the celestial spheres and scrying crystal balls for her. Okay, now, so she's into spiritualism in a big way and uh, Robert doesn't approve. No. He thinks it's bunkum. Well, that's absolutely right. And and Browning was notorious for this. In 1855, he had had quite a run-in with a man called uh, Douglas Holm, who was considered the great imposter of the age. And he wrote a poem about him, about this episode called Mr. Smudge, which uh, Victorianists will know. She also gets to have a chat to the Pope. Right. So there she is living in Italy during the period of the Risorgimento. You know, so the Pope who was once very liberal but became much more calcified after um, Garibaldi did an up, made an attempted uprising in 1848, has hardened his ways and he's scheming to try and convert as many Protestant women as he can. And so he's using his, um, his many priests to befriend Protestant women living in Rome, like Adelaide Ironside, to see if they can convert them to Catholicism. And uh, and so Adelaide was quite aware of this. Everybody <laughs> knew that this was going on, that this was the, the main game. But she had an agenda, Philip. She wanted to get into... She wanted to convert the Pope to Protestantism. <laughs> well, she, it's funny. She does write a letter to Dr Lang about it and she says, don't you worry about me. I told him where I stood and said that I'm as clear as the fresh mountain breeze and so I was. But, you know, what she managed to do, with, which is extraordinary, is that she convinced the Pope to give her permission to go into the convent, the monastery of St Mark's in Florence so that she could look at the work of Frau Angelico. Now, women were simply not allowed into monasteries during this period and many other uh, artists had attempted to do so unsuccessfully, but she did it. So many gifts, so clever, so manipulative when necessary. Adelaide dies of consumption in Rome in 1867. She's just 35 years old. You've mentioned the obit in the Athenaeum. Any other reports on her passing? Yeah, well, that Athenaeum obituary was syndicated through something like 20 newspapers across the British world. When it came back to Australia, it was produced here. But we can really get an insight into those final days of her life because Martha wrote these terribly, terribly sad letters back to Dr Lang about her final days with her daughter and the many beautiful things she said before she died. That's a a quote from the letters. And for a time, Martha uh, contemplated burying Adelaide Ironside in the non-Catholic cemetery in Rome where Keats and Shelley had both been buried with the idea that Adelaide might belong forever to those famous 19th century figures. But in the end, she decided to embalm Adelaide's remains, return to London with her, with the idea that she would get Adelaide's wildflowers published in a folio and with the money that she had she had achieved from securing her legacy, she would then return to Australia with Adelaide's remain and bury her among the wildflowers of the North Shore. How much of her work survives? I think for a 19th century woman, an Australian woman, we can say quite a lot survives. We have three or four of her ambitious oil paintings. We have sketches and these are 
peppered across different holdings in Australia. The Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery has stuff, the regional galleries, Benalla. They have portraits that she did of different people, including Wentworth's daughters. So we have those portraits. We have these um, this diverse kind of collection of sketches done in pencil, done in chalk, done in pastel. And we have her her diary which includes her poetry. And, of course, Philip, we have those 20-plus poems that she published in her 20s in Australia's most radical newspaper of the time. What you've written is a triumph for a speculative biography and thanks for coming in, Kira. You've done her proud. Kira Lindsay, historian and author of Wild Love, The Ambitions of Adelaide Ironside, the first Australian artist, to astonish the world, and it's uh, published by Alan and Unwin. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.